D-A-K-I-C-K-B-A-C-K. Another episode of The Kickback with Sabrina, Sharika, and E.B. Sit back, relax, and vibe. Welcome back, friends. This is part two of our political forum, and we are honored to be with the one and only Dr. Donald Dixon. And I will warn you guys, he was already dropping golden nuggets before we began. And I got so excited. I had to say, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) I got to stop the conversation until we start the recording because Dr. Dixon comes to us with a wealth of knowledge and encouragement and inspiration and just a word on what is going on in America today. Sharika, do you have anything to say to the people as far as where we're at with part two of the forum? We are just excited for you guys to hear, you know, a different side. I was actually talking to one of my friends and she was, and I was just saying, you know, um, some of the feedback that I've been hearing from our first forum was that, you know, it was good to hear that, hear a conversation with Christians on both sides, because I felt like I, as a Christian, you had to be on one side. And I was was telling a friend, I'm like, that's surprising to me that people feel as Christians, you should be, you should definitely be on one side or the other. And actually, I personally, as a Christian, feel like I can't really be on either side. Like there's things that I, that resonate and make sense to me. And I believe that happen on both sides. And I don't necessarily feel as though, you know, I have to be this or I have to be that. So um, I'm excited to hear what Dr. Dixon has to say. And I'm excited for the people to learn more about him and also for us all to continue to expand our minds on this, these topics. Absolutely. I was telling Dr. Dixon about part one of our forum and how we hosted members from Blexit and their goal of helping Black people move from the Democratic Party to wherever. They say that they're nonpartisan, but they're very openly supporters of Trump and the Republican platform. Dr. Dixon, do you want to share what your response was to that? Well, I say the only problem with that premise is that there is only one political party that exists in America anymore. What used to be the Republican Party has degenerated into a cult. Mm. And, and, and uh, you know, there are people who are attracted to cults. I don't happen to be one of them. Um, you know, but if you are attracted to a cult that has nothing that even resembles Christian values, have mm. at it. Um, you know, every, I mean, that's the one thing that's, that's really great about America. We have the right to be stupid. It's guaranteed by that's... the Constitution. Uh, and so, so if someone is saying to me, I want to rescue Black people from the Democratic Party and transition them to another party other than the Republican Party, I'm willing to listen. Hmm. Right, but if you tell me that you want to transition me out of the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, I will tell you that I am not very tolerant of idiocy. Now, having said that, one of the I saw on somebody's car at work. I won't mention who it is. They say that they have a sign on the back of it that says, "I think, therefore, I vote Republican." Mm. And my first response was, that's prima facie evidence that you don't think. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, because if you are a thinker, you vote issues. There you go, if, Dr. If Dixon. You are, if you're an ideologue, you vote party. Does mm. that make sense? That makes a whole lot of sense That to makes me. sense, yeah. but can you expand upon that? Well, I vote issues. For example, if I've had, I taught at the university for many years and I taught policy, social welfare policy. And a lot of my students would say, well, Dr. Dixon, please tell us, are you liberal? Are you conservative? Are you moderate? Are, and I'd say, well, first, what's the issue? Because mm. I'm all over the place. Yes. <laughs> if, you, if you ask me about capital punishment, I am radically opposed for moral reasons. Okay, if you ask me about um, financial investment, I tend to be very conservative because I think if you enter a room with a group of people to solve a problem, if you put money on the table from the beginning, all of the creativity goes out of the room. Mm. So I'm not opposed to spending my dollars, my tax dollars for, for good purposes, but I first want to exploit the most valuable resource in the room, and that's our intelligence to think wow. and, and the yeah. ability to think together. So I'm very conservative when it comes physically conservative. But if mm -hmm. you ask me, you know, what do I think about um, about uh, abortion rights? I would say that's not the business that government should be into. Mm -hmm. You see, it's not about whether I I agree with it or not. It's not, I don't want to participate in trying to tell a woman what to do with her womb, primarily because we have never been successful in doing that. That is right? true. So I would hope that girls and boys are raised in such a way that they value themselves, they value their bodies, and they value making good decisions about uh, creating children and raising children. Mm-hmm. And if we did that, we would have to not attend so much to the whole issue of abortion because people would be having children they want, they'd be having children that they can support, they'd be having children that they can love, and therefore they don't need to um, uh, get rid of them prior to birth. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. It Definitely. Happens. And I would yeah. just say, you know, um, I think education is a very big part of that. As well as, um, I think, a level of compassion and understanding as well. Um, there's a lot of reasons and there's things that I think we can do to help people before they make that choice. Um, and, and, and just saying it's illegal is not what I think is going to be um, the most wise choice because people, whether it was illegal or not, it will still happen. Well, so, the irony there is it was made legal because it was so, it had become so deadly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's amazing how we, we, we think, I, I, I am not very tolerant of people who can't think critically, but if mm -hmm. we did away with abortion, if we did away with Roe v. Wade tomorrow, we'd still have abortions. They just exactly. feel a lot more dangerously um, done. And that's the reason we got Roe v. Wade. So, you know, rather than, and I, I believe that in many places, particularly the, the Christian right, the evangelical community has created abortion as a smokescreen for what otherwise 
is white supremacy. And, mm -hmm. and, and unless we are willing to address those issues, we can never manage them. Um, so I know that's a departure from the early conversation, but no, 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 the fact it, it is, straight is into it. yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, um, I, I once met a guy that I worked years before with and he saw me, he, he said, he looked at me and he said, Don Dixon, the man who speaks truth power. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's I thought, <laughs> and I thought, so that's the way you remember me. Huh? <laughs> but I've always had, I've always had a problem just sort of um, not speaking my mind. The bottom line is, if you get upset when you hear the words Black Lives Matter, then you don't understand in America, Black Lives have never mattered. And I can give you a historical support for that, not emotionally driven, mm, amen. but I can give you historical support for it. Our prison system yeah, the perfect example of a continuation of slavery that never went away. Exactly. You see what That's I mean? So, oh, absolutely. Uh, Edie actually yeah. speaking Woo. to us about that in a documentary titled 13th, which I yeah. didn't even know it was based on the 13th Amendment, which that mm -hmm. speaks to one of our questions. So first, I want us to uh, just address this question about what policies have impacted the U.S. positively or negatively in the debate about abortion. I do want to call out one of our listeners, Ashley, who told me that the, much like you were saying, Dr. Dixon, because of Planned Parenthood, abortion has actually been at an all-time low because people are getting the education. Now, I don't have the facts and figures to prove or disprove that, but I do think there is truth in that what Sharika and you were saying, the more people are educated, the less time they make that choices because they feel like they have other options. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, Planned Parenthood is not a promotion promote, I mean, an abortion promoting organization. Mm -hmm. It is a women's health promoting yes. organization. It just doesn't take abortion off the table as an option, mm -hmm. but it promotes health care, um, primarily uh, women's health care for prim primarily poor women. Mm -hmm. um, so a reproductive health care from for poor women it, does it say that that abortion is an option yeah um, mm -hmm. um but i don't know how you expect people to make intelligent decisions or choices if you don't give them all of the information and i think that's what you know um that organization does and um so if you scratch me really, really deeply, what you'll find is that um, I never advocated with any woman that I had babies with. That's only one, actually, and two of them. Uh, but I never advocated at one time that we abort the child. That's not in my wheelhouse, you know? Um, and my first child was born out of wedlock. And so... A lot of people don't know that, but the fact is, is that once I realized I was a dad, I realized I had an a responsibility to take care of this child and nurture this child into the uh, person that I wanted them to be. Um, you know, but but we get really crazy. A statement in one of my sessions that um, Trump may be the most immoral president in the history of America. And I got back through my boss of somebody who complained. I said that. And I said, first and foremost, I don't think I had some, 
surrendered my First Amendment rights. But secondly, I can give you uh, historical evidence to support it. And what the person should have told to the person that uh, complained is, you should confront the person you have the issue with. Mm -hmm. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But they better not come half-stepping. Okay. <laughs> you see what you I mean? Like my mom. Yeah, yeah okay. you don't come half-stepping with me. I do my homework. But that's the thing about a lot of people, they, we, we, we have, it's easier to complain than to confront. Yeah. Yes, and to confront with like Dr. Dixon is talking about actual facts. And Dr. Dixon, you did mention how abortion could be linked to white supremacy. It's interesting in our conversation last week, we were told that actually the lady who founded the abortion clinics was her sole purpose was to get people african-american people to abort their right. babies and right. in new york and this is a fact and figure they shared with us i need to mm -hmm. fact check it they said right. last year in new york the same amount of black babies that were born was the same amount that was aborted so hearing yeah. that how does that make you feel about your statement that abortion is actually you know something that's linked to white supremacy well th no, don't get me wrong i think there are the, the abortion has become the issue that people hide behind uh, to justify their support for somebody like Trump. You see what I mean? And Trump is a white supremacist. He has pretty much declared it. Uh, all of that euphemistic language, making America great again, make America great again, for whom? Mm -hmm. You know, and, what I mean? and and yeah, and when was America great in the way that you were, you you were talking about? You, you see, uh, um, the evidence is compelling that what we are in in the middle of is a huge social change in America, mm. where black and brown people are actually ascending in a way that's given very serious threat to many white Americans. And I'm not saying all white Americans. I don't, because I, I know white Americans who are significantly alarmed by what they're seeing. Mm, yes. But the fact is, is that um, the white supremacist movement in America has a, a perfect spokesperson. And for people to say, I'm supporting Trump because he's going to stack the courts and do away with Roe v. Wade, um, is are hide, these people are hiding behind um, that issue to promote the fact that they want to ensure that white is always on top and that is supreme. And you know, and I don't have a I have a problem with it. I understand the dynamics of it. It's inevitable that 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 supremacy will be significantly reduced over time because the, the demographics say that. Mm -hmm. Right, and so they are—they are fighting. I could give you all kinds of data to show you why, particularly white men, are so afraid of losing their position on the top of our social um, ladder. Um, in part because they've abandoned uh, the need to educate themselves to compete, and then in the middle of all of this, in the last thirty years, we transition from an industrial a manufacturing economy to a technical economy. And you can't just leave high school and go get the best job in town simply because you're white and male. Mm. 
you've got to compete. You know, yeah. you've got to be educated, you've got to be skilled, and you've got to compete. And they've started to see their jobs differently. So, but but the response is we need to support this white supremacist under the guise of supporting abortion rights, you know, do, doing away with abortion and doing away with Roe v. Wade. And I say, let's do away with Roe v. Wade tomorrow. And let's see what happens. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't have a commitment to it. Now, when, when we, I don't know the, the data that you, that you listed about the number of black babies born were comparable to the number of black babies um, um, aborted. I, I don't know that data, so I don't want to speak about it in, in any kind of way. Absolutely fair. Yeah. Well, but I want to say, you know, I just want to say in regards to that, but, you know, with people's idea like that they want to vote for Trump because the, well, Trump has been president for, for, for almost four years now, so where, how has he done away with it? Well, they know he can't do away with and it. Exactly. Argument, so that's what will be that since he's been in the White House, he has closed, you know, hundred more abortion clinics than any other person. But it goes back to Dr. Dixon's question of in Roe v. Wade today and then what happens. So I yeah. think that's that's a fair statement for us to ponder yeah. on as we now think about the next question. We kind of previously talked about prisons. Since 2000, the number of people in prison overall increased overall 7.8%, while the number of people in private prisons increased 39.3%. In what ways do private prisons hurt or help American society, and are there any policies to support your thoughts on that? You want me to speak to that? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I mean, um, Prisons were never supposed to be money-making industries. Mm. Okay, they were never intended. Now, it, the pri private prisons started to proliferate again in America in the 1980s. It just so happened at the same time we created this war on drugs that was primarily waged in black and brown communities. Right. There's all kinds of evidence out there that says drug use among the different ethnic groups is lowest among African-Americans than any other ethnic group in America. Wow. Yeah, in fact, white Americans use drugs at a slightly higher rate than their black and brown um, compatriots. Wow. But, but, but if you wage a war exclusively in black and brown communities, you catch black and brown people who are breaking the law. And mm -hmm. what happened was, now, you know, there are a lot of theories behind this, and I love reading theories. I don't know if you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell. Um, he wrote Blank, and he wrote um, uh, David and Goliath, and he wrote Tipping Point. And I can't remember which one. I think it was in Blink. He actually put forth a theory that was incredibly uh, compelling uh, and controversial. So in the 1980s, what we had predicted that in the 1990s, by the 1990s, well, there was a proliferation of out of wedlock black babies in the 1970s. And, the, and, the, and according to Gladwell, the projection was we were going to need a significantly larger number of prison beds by the 1990s. And so we got into the business of building these private prisons 
expecting that the population of young black males who needed to be um, uh, incarcerated was going to just explode off the chart. Gladwell proposes that that never happened and that never happened, that explosion never happened because Roe v. Wade happened in 1973. Hmm. And a lot of those babies that should have wound up in prison were aborted. Hmm. Now that, you, so, so, but once we had built the prisons, now we had to populate them. So we transitioned right from the 1970s into the 1980s in the drug, the war on drugs. The war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And so much so that we created different sentencing for uh, powder cocaine versus crack cocaine. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. the private prisons got into the business of promoting themselves because they needed occupancy. Right? Yeah. So they started promoting longer sentences. So in the 1990s, we get the three strikes and you're out kind of thing, where if you got three felonies, regardless of how severe they were, you were sentenced to life in prison. So they, they created not only um, a pipeline for people to occupy their prison cells, but they created a policy that mm -hmm. actually ensured that they would be there for a lot longer period. Yeah. So now the private um, jail system, and by the way, most of it's at the federal level. Most of the private prisons are at the federal level. And that's where most of the people who wind up in prison on drug charges um, uh, uh, matriculate through the, the federal system. Um, so, so much so that now there are like a $5 billion industry, hmm. private prisons. You are kidding. No, and they only house about 19 to 20% of all federal prisoners but they have grown into this incredible industry that's, wow. going to be, that's going to be extremely difficult to dismantle. Why is it going to be hard to dismantle? Because there's so much money in it. Yeah. Mm. That's why we realized that the war on drugs was a failure by the late mm -hmm. 1980s, but 90s, but then it had become a $50 billion industry by that time. Mm -hmm. And it, was, it became incredibly difficult to dismantle it. Because people who are making money out of it. They don't want to let that go. No, and they're going to lobby their legislators and mm -hmm. lobby other uh, policymakers to ensure that we, we continue this very lucrative uh, industry. Right. So, wow. so that now you see, I just created a nexus between uh, uh, um, uh, Roe v. Wade abortion and, and private mm -hmm. prison. Right. And, um, yeah. And so... And Go ahead. I was going to say, and which are all affecting majority people of color. Absolutely. And, and then, and we juxtaposition that to now this time the opioid crisis, which is affecting majority uh, Caucasian people and other people. But that's not viewed as a war on drugs, criminally. It's uh, opioid crisis. These people need help. These right. people need aid. Um, and and are and 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 it's looked at totally different than as yeah. you were talking about the war on drugs that was affecting majority uh african-american people here's how the language changes suddenly around mm -hmm. the opioid crisis um is a, a public health crisis mm -hmm. um the the crack cocaine was a criminal justice crisis mm -hmm. do you understand yep. the difference Yep. This is not accidental in America. Mm -hmm. 
you, there are studies that show we start, um, we start branding and labeling boys, black boys, white boys, brown boys at about age four. At about age, yes, at about age four, disproportionately, black boys who act out are considered bad. They're described with words that would paint mm-hmm. them as bad. White boys are described as as mad, which means and they go hyper. into the yeah, and so they go into the mental health system. Black boys go into the juvenile justice system, yep. and brown boys are right behind them. Mm-hmm. So by the time they get to about age thirteen, when they will enter juvenile justice. We have already created a very short hop, jump, and skip to the adult criminal system. Here's the thing that you have to understand in America, very few of these social phenomena are accidental. Mm. Very few of them are. And I remember, now that you say that, I remember my mom, like, not I was a teenager, but like, you know, taking care of kids or watching kids, whatever I was doing, whether she was like, you don't tell kids that they're bad. You don't say kids, you don't say kids are bad. And I, and that, you know, you don't tell kids that they're bad. Kids are not bad. You know, they do misbehave now. They misbehave. They and that's the language. They misbehave, but they're not bad. I'm kind of mind blown now though, Dr. Dixon, because I feel like, I don't know if you've seen the memes of the guy and he's trying to collect connect all the dots and he looks crazy. I feel like you're blowing my mind and I need to take a whole course with Dr. Dixon because I'm like, wait a minute, I never thought about these things. But since we're talking about children, let's just go ahead and ask that question about school choice or school vouchers. How, if at all, do school vouchers contribute to educational reform for all Americans since currently it's only offered in 18 states and proponents of the school vouchers say that parents should have the right to choose, but people who are against it say that many low-income families are not even able to cover the cost that the vouchers did, and that the vouchers don't accommodate for special needs or kids who are disabled. So do you have anything that you'd like to say about that? Well, yeah, we're dealing with the wrong part of the problem. Mm. See, all this stuff about whether we do vouchers or whether we do um, private schools or whether we do, um, you know, um, what are, they, what are those special schools that are pulled out? Charter, charter. charter schools. That's 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 the uh, uh, those are tactics to address a problem we just are unwilling to address. And mm-hmm. that is, it doesn't matter where. If we really truly believed, which is one of the biggest lies we per- perpetuate in our society, and it's just children are our greatest resource. Mm. Children are our greatest treasure. You ever heard that? Children are our future. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence. There is no evidence anywhere where we where we truly believe that. We abuse them to no end. Um, you know, the, the, the for the example, the anti-abortion advocates are mm. always so interested in children until they're born. And then it's sort of like, ah, forget them. We don't care if they live in perpetual poverty. We don't care if they're starving half the day or night. Exactly. You know, we don't care. We just want them here. Well, if we are true to our word, we would value our children as if they are absolute gold because they are in an effect our future. But one of the things that we are wor- we should worry about now, and the evidence is supportive of that, is that as 
my generation grows older, we haven't raised enough younger people to take care of us mm. in, our, in our old age. Uh, because one is we've, we've significantly abused them and we've not done a good job of rearing them and holding them to a set of standards. So the, the, back to the school. So it doesn't matter where you educate a child, that child ought to have the, the benefit of the most quality, high-class education there is. And forget the excuses, you know, because the excuse is, well, you know, they come from a, a low-income family and they come from a single-parent household and their parents aren't involved and blah, 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 blah. I came out of a segregated school system, right? I came out of a segregated school system that was denied a lot of the advantages that the white kids right across town were, were had, had the benefit of. But the thing that was not absent in my community was this absolute commitment to educating our children. Mm. Our parents who didn't have education themselves but valued education insisted that their children get a quality education. So, so how does that happen then if we didn't have the resources and the tools and all of that, that we were better educated? And I would say this to you, and I, I've said it, I said it, I taught at university for 15 years, and I would say to my students, here's what I can say to you. I came out of segregated school system and my education is superior to yours, mm. right? Because, because people believed in black communities that that was our only way out, mm. okay? Mm. Education was our only way out and they educated the entire person, mind, body, soul, spirit, everything. In fact, black colleges and universities, when they were developed after the Civil War, actually purport, purported to do that. We want mm. to educate the entire person. So, and I read an article, I don't know, about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, that asked the question, who does better in their professional careers? Black students who go primarily to HCB, HBCUs, graduation from HBCUs or from predominantly white institutions. And you know what the answer was? Those who go to HBCUs. Mm. I was going to say, I'm afraid to hear because I definitely went to a PWI. <laughs> right. Like, no! Well, and so now the social scientists started to speculate, why is that? Hmm. And one of the reasons they, they, they had concluded was black institutions educate the entire person. Mm. That was a time when if you went to an HBCU, you didn't go to church on Sunday because you had a choice. Mm. You went to church on Sunday because you were required, right? But that was just part of the education. And you acted like a gentleman, you acted like a lady, you, you, were, you were to conduct yourself on and off campus with a certain level of dignity. Mm. You know, you were, you were taught to speak well and to enunciate well. And all of those things, and before you know it, you are thinking well. So, and then what we did, because we didn't know any better, is in the 1960s, we wanted to integrate our kids with white kids. 
and I called it turning out the education of our children over to the enemy. Not because they were malintended, it's just that a, people, a group of people who have lived their entire history in this country learning to hate you with incredible intensity, mm. you expect them to fully educate your children? <laughs> Are you serious? Um, so, so, so when, when we talk about choice and vouchers and all that kind of stuff, that's just a smoke screen for the fact that it doesn't matter whether a, ch a child shows up in a bathroom to be educated, they ought to be entitled to the best education that we can give. And we know how to do that. But the moment they walk into a classroom, we make decisions about them. If they're mm. black and nappy-headed and got a wide nose and big lips, the first conclusion is they can't learn. Ooh, that hurt. <laughs> that got deep. Yeah, yeah. And if they are, if they are white and fair-skinned, the first conclusion is they can. Wow. Um, you know, so it's a very subtle but very powerful. And then, of course, you get into self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you treat a child like they're, they can't learn, eventually mm -hmm. they can't learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely, that's absolutely true. Uh, you were talking earlier about how a lot of these issues are so interconnected and how you will yeah. never be able to support capital punishment. Now, there are criticisms that the party that's the most pro-life is also the party that is the biggest advocate of capital punishment. And you touched on that. You talked mm -hmm. about how a lot of times people care about the baby up until it is born. Yeah. Uh, the Biden campaign is pro-choice, but against the death penalty. And Trump's administration is pro-life, but pro-death penalty. Do you believe there's a contradiction there? Absolutely, there's a contradiction. There is a contradiction. Look, uh, I'm very clear about this. See, I, I call these the little white lies we tell to ourselves. Um, I cannot be anti-capital um, uh, punishment and pro-abortion. I can't. That's a, con that's a moral contradiction for me. Okay? And vice, vice versa. I cannot be pro-life and for the death penalty. Mm. A moral contradiction. But we allow each other to lie to each other and tell us <laughs> little white lies as if there is no disconnect. At the very least, we ought to acknowledge I'm not a perfect human being. Mm -hmm. And therefore, one of my flaws is that I believe on both sides of this issue. Mm. Okay? Then you need to pray and pray harder that you will find wisdom and, and mm -hmm. maturity in your life to resolve those contradictions. Amen. But don't act like they are. Don't act like there is no disconnect. Mm -hmm. you, you That's a good that is, mm, He got I'm me out here like, preaching. I'm not as crazy as I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> what happened out here thinking, you crazy? I'm like, yeah. how does this make sense? I do also want to address something that was uh, said in our first forum about Trump giving more to black HBCUs and black colleges than in another administration. But I just read on usnews.com, unfortunately it's not a .org or .net, so feel free to fact check us on this, but that $255 million in annual funding, funding was given because Congress failed to renew it September 30th. 
So yeah. once again, it talks to Sharika yeah. what mm -hmm. he said about creating a problem and then coming in and solving it. Right. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you what, you know, President Trump, by his own admission, has done more for Black Americans than anybody with the exception of Abraham Lincoln. That's what he said. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, there's a commercial that runs on uh, Sports Talk Radio, and the guy says, lie, lie, <laughs> lie. <laughs> All right, yeah. so now um, E.B. is traveling, but he is going to be joining us in just a moment. E.B., oh, no, are you okay. with us? I definitely feel like we were on a radio show. E.B., are you with us? <laughs> yeah, E.B., are you with us? I well, he's in, he's in the screen, but he's, yeah, there he is. There he is, E.B. Yes. I am. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Dixon is absolutely blowing my mind. I'm sorry, Dr. Dixon, but I'm secretly texting Sharika all of your golden nuggets. And I'm like, I love this man. He's amazing. Uh, and you, you're just blowing my mind on so many things. So uh, EB, Dr. Dixon has already talked to us about educational reform, about the abortion issue, about the prison, private prisons, and how all of these things are connected. He talked to us about school choice. So we're going to move on to the second half of questions. And, and, he, and, and EB, as I, he basically just said, it is a contradiction to be pro-life and, 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 and for the death penalty as we both discussed last time. Right, so as before we go to the second half of questions, Evie, is there anything you just want to speak to to Dr. Dixon now that you have him on the call with all of us? <laughs> hey, Evie, how you doing? <laughs> I would say, hey, Dr. Dixon, I would say no, not right now, just because I don't want to have him have to repeat anything. And we have a lot of conversations at the office often about some of these same issues. He's amazing. Yeah. Okay, moving on then. Many believe that the current gun control laws are suitable and further restrictions would put more guns in the hands of criminals and endanger the Second Amendment rights of Americans. Are there any policies or legislation that support your thoughts on this, Dr. Dixon? Well, yeah, the Second Amendment, except that we all know that the Second Amendment was created at a specific point in time. Bottom line is this, America has a problem with weapons. Okay, I don't care what the Second Amendment basically you think it said, because I don't think it guaranteed you the right to these weapons. But the fact is, is that we are an incredibly violent society. It doesn't have to be that way. That's the way we've trained our children. You know, Canada has more guns mm, per mm. capita than the U.S. Now, we have more guns overall because we have a much more bigger population, but they have more guns per capita than the U.S., and their murder rate is about 5% of ours a year. Uh, wow. See what I mean? So I, I don't know. I think we have to get guns out of our society until we teach our children over a generation or two to respect other people's person and their bodies and their lives and to value human beings. And then you can have guns. I'm not, I'm not one of those advocates for doing away with guns in our society for the purpose of doing away with guns. I grew up with guns, um, but I also knew that you did not threaten other people with weapons mm. like that. Absolutely, it goes so, down to educating the whole person, which right. is what we talked about before. And, and in Canada, they have very strict, uh, 
regulations on guns. They do, they constantly yeah. do checks on criminal records, like not just one time, not just when you get the, I believe it's yeah. like monthly or something. And they have a rec, they're very uh, strict with their record of right. holds guns. And, and if you are found, something does happen, they will come to you, to your door to, you know, yeah. address that situation and collect your guns if need yeah. be. Now let's talk about the little white lie that we tell each other about, about guns. Every time you have a mass shooting, the first thing that our um, politicians who don't want to do anything about guns in our society say is, well, we've got to fund more mental health. As if you have to be crazy to kill other people. Dylan Roof wasn't crazy. He shot nine people in the church in, in, uh, in, uh, in North Carolina. He wasn't crazy. The man who shot those 58 people and killed them from that hotel room in Las Vegas wasn't crazy. That kid that, that killed all those people, those other kids at um, Marjorie Stoneham Douglas, wasn't crazy. The kid had emotional issues. There's a difference. But the, every time we, we, we default to, well, we've got to fund mental health. And then, of course, when the situation dies down, we don't fund mental health. I can <laughs> tell you that absolutely in Florida. We are, the, we are one of the worst states in the nation for funding mental health care. Wow. This goes back 30 years, 40 years. We've never made a commitment to funding it. But every time, that's the default position. We want to say, well, we got to fund more mental health services. No, we don't. Here's the data. The data says that people with mental illness kill other people at the same rate that the rest of us who've never had mental illness kill other people, about 10% of the population. You see, uh, that's, that's what the data says. And uh, but we always default to that because we don't want to do anything about guns and we don't want to do anything about behavior related to weapons I in our society. Sorry, go ahead. I was like, no, you finished that, you did something. Well, I mean, uh, uh, the, the perfect example is George Floyd. We watched George Floyd being murdered slowly over eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mm -hmm. People got angry. They got angry and they took to the streets. And unfortunately, some people looted and rioted and burned property. And the only thing people could see in response, their takeaway from George Floyd being slowly, methodically murdered, with the look in the guy's eye who did it, saying, I can do this and you can't do anything to me. Mm. And yet the, the takeaway was, well, we've got to stop all this burning and looting. And I'm thinking, my God, if that's the, if you can get away that easy after, after the anger that's been spurred behind somebody being murdered, that's a pretty good uh, exchange, right? But no, the takeaway is, no, they're hurting their own cause. And I'm saying, Black Americans are hurting our own cause? White Americans who are, right, who, are, who, are, who are protesting on our behalf are hurting our cause. We can't hurt our cause anymore in America <laughs> that has already been hurt. I, I, you know, I, I want to make people aware of that. I tell you what, if you ever want to just do a search, go on Google and search white attacks on black communities or white attacks on blacks. 
and the list is is pages long. And then do the reverse. Google black attacks on whites. Mm. And the list is less than a page. But yet we've been portrayed as the dangerous ones. Mm. You see? Because they get to write the narrative. They get to, to set the social agenda in America. Now, it is true that during slavery, white people were always living, lived in fear that black people were going to rise up and create these uh, and attack them and kill them. They had legitimate reasons for doing that. But there were only a few slave uh, revolts in American history. Um, the most, the most uh, notable one was Nat Turner in 1831 in Virginia, mm. and then did Mark Vesey in, in, in uh, South Carolina, who's, that, that attack was actually thwarted and they were hung. Um, and so, and so mm. was, um, but the fact is, is that you don't find the Rosewoods and, um, and the, um, the, the Tulsa attack and the Okoe and, 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 um, and the Tampa attacks that, that among black people perpetrated against whites. And yet somehow we've become dangerous. All I'm simply saying is, um, um, you, the, the narrative has always been written and we've always been the victims, right? But I want to say, Dr. Dixon, back to it. Well, what two things that correlated in my mind in regards to what you were saying um, with, the, with the mental illness, um, all those people that you mentioned um, that were deemed mentally ill or whatever, happened to be Caucasian. Yeah. I wonder what the narrative would have been about these individuals had they been people of color, would they have, would they be uh, assumed to Ill? have? Yeah. No, I can tell you that. That's not what the evidence supports. <laughs> exactly, and, exa and, then, and that's why, and that's the same thing with the whole George Floyd thing and yeah people being upset about the looting more than the actual life that was lost because yeah. it was a life of color versus had that been uh, Sam, Sally Sue yeah. un under the knee, they yeah. wouldn't care about no looting. They wouldn't care about none of that stuff. They would be ready to burn the whole place down Absolutely. had that been Sally Sue. And you said it correctly, um, but a little bit more straightforward is it was a life of color, which means it was a worthless life. Mm, wow. um, and I, I, I had a, um, a white friend of mine after the Michael uh, Brown shooting in, in, uh, in Missouri. You know what she asked me? She said, well, did he have to rob the 7-Eleven? And I said, he didn't rob the 7-Eleven, he burglarized it, allegedly. Mm. But mm -hmm. is that the punishment for stealing something from a 7-Eleven anymore, summarily being executed? Mm -hmm. Summary execution, the police officer playing um, you know, judge and jury and executioner 
and killing a, a black man because allegedly he stole something from a 7-Eleven and was walking away from him when he killed him. Now here's the tragedy in all of that. Mm. And we are all victims in America of this just insidious systemic racism. Yeah. We get killed and white people can't see what the problem is because their brains have been trained to think, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. You or they just I mean? something to deserve it. Yeah, now when I say that, I'm generalizing mm -hmm. because that's not mm -hmm. all white people. The, right, the, exactly. The difference in what we're seeing now, when, when George Floyd was murdered, I said to, I turned to my wife and I said, babe, this may be the seminal moment. Mm. We've had seminal moments in, in America before of the Edmund Pettus bridge attack in Selma, Alabama was a seminal moment. Um, but this may be a seminal moment greater than that uh, one because it shook white America in a way that white Americans have not been shaken in a long time. Um, you see, and now here's what I would say. These are the kinds of conversations we have to have in America before we can get better. Mm -hmm. And I don't want anyone, or I don't care either, if they <laughs> want to think that I'm racist because I raise it in such direct form. But this is the kind of conversation that we're afraid to have for political correctness purposes and reasons. You know, oh my God, you're calling me a racist. Well, let me tell you something. If you find an American who has not been affected by or infested by racism, call me, I want to meet them, <laughs> right? Because it is the primary currency in our culture. Yeah. Everything is about race in America, everything. On that note, I'm going to ask another question that you will probably show how uh, it connects with everything else we've been talking about. And this is the criticisms with universal health care, right? In countries with it, they say it includes long wait times and less choice options in treatment. And the demand for systemic reform in America's health care system, what if any policies contribute to addressing high insurance costs, treatment obstacles, social economic inequalities, and et cetera? Okay, so here's where I tell you, you remember earlier I said to you, um, uh, thinking people vote issues, not the mm -hmm. party. Absolutely. Well, okay, here's where Bernie Sanders is correct. Mm. Right? Now, I, I on, on the whole, I'm not a Bernie Sanders supporter because, not because I, a lot of what he says is, is not correct, it's too aggressive for the times, okay? Mm. But he's right on health care. He's right on the health care piece. The problem is, is that in order to reform the American healthcare system so that it's both universal and cost-effective, we would have to dismantle a multi-billion-dollar insurance industry. Uh, this is the same thing with the private prisons. We can't do it if it's right, <laughs> right, right. But 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 other countries that have universal healthcare have managed to do it. Now, I remember England going through it in the 1960s, 
and they fought like cats and dogs, tooth and nail for years. Mm. And all of those allegations about, well, it takes too long to access healthcare, blah, 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 blah. It's a bunch of noise. It's, it's a smoke screen. <laughs> the bottom line is this. America is a disease mitigation healthcare system. Those other countries are health promotion healthcare systems. You see? And, and, and so, if you start teaching our children from the time that they're born to eat right and to exercise and to take care of their bodies and to take care of their health and talk about the kinds of things that promote good health, you know, sort of like not a McDonald's-oriented worldview, um, what you do is you have less disease over a mm -hmm. lifetime. Now, see, I, people hear me talking, they say, well, he's just talking off the top of his head. No, I've done the research on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Remember, I taught this stuff for years. And what we know is um, the majority of your healthcare costs in the average American's life will be uh, spent in the last five to seven years of their life. And the reason is, is because we're mitigating the diseases that have ravaged our bodies because we didn't live healthily all of our lives. That's hard to, that's hard to fathom because we are a country now that has descended into obesity the way that um, we've never been in our history. And that is a threat to health. So, now, what, what we don't want to get into is pointing fingers and blaming each other because I, don't, I maintain that obesity in America is not because people don't lack the willpower to, to turn away from the food. The food we eat has all kinds of chemicals in it. Mm. I, I believe that. And so we don't promote good health. But I, I, when I talk to my doctor, she says to me, I want you to, we want to get you to a healthy 100. And I, you know, after I tell her that you hadn't talked to me about that, I don't know if I want to live that long. But the fact is, is that, uh, <laughs> you know, but we talk about what it takes to live healthy. And I always say to her, Doc, I want to die healthy. Mm. Right? So and at first, and yeah, and at first she goes, that's really interesting. And I said, yeah, I don't want to suffer the last few years of my life. I want to just go to bed one time, one day, and I wake up. Mm. My body gives out. That's dying healthy. You, you see what I mean? So because we don't have, we have a disease mitigation healthcare system, it is then number 16 among the 32 healthcare systems in America, in the world. It's, it's middle of the road. And yet our health care costs are the highest in the world. In the next country nearest to us is about one third of what we pay for health care. Wow. You see what I mean? So we pay through the nose and we get lousy health care for the most part. Mm. We can reform that. Now, in the absence of dismantling the, the, the whole insurance industry, this is what Obama tried to do with he tried to create the greatest access healthcare system through the Affordable Care Act. Mm. 
without dismantling the uh, insurance industry. He made a major leap forward. Mm. Major leap forward. Because at the very least, 20 million more Americans got, got access to healthcare who didn't have it before. And remember, a sizable proportion of those in Florida, that was over 800,000 children mm. who, who didn't have access to healthcare who got it. So what, what you're talking about is a healthcare system that promotes healthy living, promotes health, and reduces cost because over time, if you promote health, you will have fewer catastrophic illnesses. And that's where most of our uh, healthcare money goes. That and the fact that there are a lot of people uninsured so they get their health care in the most costly health care place in America, and that's emergency rooms. Mm. You see? So if we reduce the percentage of people who have to get their health care in emergency rooms by 50%, we, we reduce the costs associated with health care significantly. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that large, like the world perspective of that, because those facts and figures are like, staggering even for me and i knew our healthcare system wasn't the best but geez louise i didn't know that's where that's where the cards were looking like right like, mind-boggling like oh uh all right so we're talking about money now and uh, conservative tax policies aim to protect businesses and investments while the liberal pro approach tends to aim to raise taxes for the wealthy to end tax havens and stop corporate loopholes in the past 10 years, are there any tax policies that you feel like have had the best impact or some that you feel like have had the worst impact on American society? Well, our whole tax system is a bad policy. <laughs> okay, it is. Anywhere that you allocate money benefits greater to the people who need it the least, it's a bad system. Anytime, so if we have three different welfare systems in America, all based on the tax dollars. We do? The first, yeah, the first welfare system is the one that everybody knows, food stamps and cash assistance, right? It's called SNAP now. Mm. Um, everybody knows about that. And I used to ask my students um, from the first day in class, I'd say, you don't have to admit it because it is a very private thing, but anybody here in here on welfare, and I would raise my hand, and none of them would raise their hand. And I'd say, am I the only person in here on welfare? And they, they'd look at me like I was crazy, and I'd go, well, I tell you what, we're all on welfare. Um, it's just that we're on different levels and different types of welfare, mm. because if you get police protection, that's welfare. If you get fire protection, that's welfare. If you get parks and recs, that's welfare. If you get schools, that's welfare. We don't call it welfare, right? We call it subsidies. Now, the second type of welfare is the type of welfare that a lot of us have benefit, but you have to, but you have to be in the middle class. And that's the welfare we get through our jobs. For example, your sick leave and your vacation leave and your medical yeah. leave. You don't earn those. They're given to you as a type of welfare. That's called fiscal welfare. And then there's a, the third type of welfare, which is the biggest of them all, and that's corporate welfare. We allocate more dollars to corporations 
as subsidies. We call them subsidies, not welfare. Mm. And any other group. Give you a very quick history. In 1932, when the, when when Roosevelt uh, was trying to revive the, the population, I mean the economy in America, the federal government came up with a, a plan, and that was to provide subsidies to farmers in America because what they did not want to do is for Americans to go hungry so much that they would create a revolution, right? So they figured out a way to to thwart revolution by subsidizing farmers, small farmers to produce product. And they did, and they fed America. And that was a great thing. At that time, 98% of all farms were small farms, small to middle farm, mid-sized farms privately owned. Today, that is now 98% owned by uh, agribusiness. These are the multi-billion dollar companies. And guess what? they still get those subsidies from the federal government that the federal government was giving to the small farmers. That's a type of corporate welfare that most of us don't even understand. Wow. Understand, Norton, this is the first time hearing about, hearing about it, okay? Yes, yes. And, and so this is my, um, um, Thomas Jefferson, who was an incredibly flawed man, but was an incredibly brilliant man used to always talk that talk about the fact that the greatest threat to democracy is an uneducated populace. Mm -hmm. He was an advocate for universal education long before it was a thing in America, because he understood to protect democracy, Americans had to educate themselves and be educated. We've just let that go. And so my advocacy is always, before you give your opinion on the issue, Go research it. Go research it from all different vantage points, you know? And then, and then you can speak more, more, more learned about it. That's not a criticism of anyone, except that's a criticism of the fact that we stopped embracing education in my lifetime. Um, but the fact is, is that that's the largest, that's the largest um, corporate welfare is the largest by far of the welfare benefits that are allocated. In fact, the, uh, the, the smallest amount is, toward the, is for the poor. <laughs> of all three, the smallest amount is for the poor. Dr. Dixon, <laughs> I know knowledge is power, but I'm getting really stressed about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, but here's the thing. Once you know this stuff, then you can start thinking critically. Mm. I used to say to my students, I say, you got to learn to take an issue in your mind's eye. And you got to look at it this way, and then you got to turn it around, look at it this way, and then you got to put it up and look at it that way. Because what you'll see are different things mm -hmm. depending on how you look at it. Mm. If you are conservative, try to look at the liberal view. If you're liberal, try to look at it from a conservative pr perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because conservative and liberal does not mean Republican and Democrat. Oh, say that again. <laughs> In fact, the definition of liberal is enlightened. What? <laughs> yeah. So, so you can call me a liberal all you want, because what I, what I, what I hope you're doing is acknowledging the fact that I'm a pretty smart dude. All right. You know? But it's not because I am intellectually superior. It's because I spent time in my life educating myself on mm -hmm. these things. Put that work in. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so that, but here's a good thing, it's available to anybody. Mm-hmm. But you gotta own what you don't know. Exactly, and you talk about it being available, and something I want our young professionals listening to tie into is where would someone go? Like what you just shared with us about the three different welfares or whatever, is this just something that they would, how would they, where would they go to get this? Would they just Google it? Are there, is there a starting point for us to yeah. understand well, this? Well, the, the, the good thing is when I was your age, I didn't have Google. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go to the library, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm still a very strong advocate for going to the library mm-hmm. and just hanging out, right? I used to take my kids all the time when we'd have some controversial subject we were talking about. So when my daughter came home one time and said, start telling me about what she learned about Manifest Destiny, I said, baby, that's not what Manifest Destiny was. <laughs> And she goes, yes, it is, because my teacher said so. And I said, I tell you what, why don't we go to the library? So we hauled ourselves <laughs> in the car to the library, and we looked it up. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I can't believe he told me wrong. And I'm going, <laughs> but 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 the, the, the advantage nowadays is that you can Google it, right? Here's, here's the, the possible danger. People Google all kinds of stuff, these blogs that are uh, people's opinions. And sometimes they are totally wrong and totally yeah. off place. But if you if you Google um, uh, peer reviewed articles on the American social welfare system, you can get some really good stuff. Mm. Right now, now when you so you got to read a lot of articles because you'll see it coming from different vantage points. And I have some articles actually on the American social welfare system and those three tiers and that kind of thing. But, um, but I believe in peer reviewed because at least somebody with some sense, multiple <laughs> people have looked at it and said, here's the strengths and here's its weaknesses and here mm-hmm. are the things you need to pay attention to. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I will probably be hitting you up for those articles after my trip to the <laughs> okay. library because okay. I'm very yeah. interested but, in that. Well, I, for my doctoral, um, my doctoral dissertation, I probably reviewed about 5,000 articles. Wow. I, 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 read, I read book chapters in probably 50 books, um, you know, and, and um, sometimes the, the data and the information on the same subject were all over the place. Mm. And then what you have to do is you have to learn to synthesize it in a way that starts to at least make it consistent with a theoretical framework, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to put it out there for other people to criticize it. That's, that's how learning takes place. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I love it. I've always loved it. It's something I did when I was a kid. If I got, if I got interested in a subject in chapel, I was telling people about uh, the fact that I, at 13 years old, I, I learned about deoxyribonucleic acid. <laughs> and I thought, this is interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got to find out more about deoxyribonucleic acid. So I went, went off to the library and, and walked in and realized that it was segregated and I was not allowed to be in there. But I got the librarian to hand me books out the back door on DNA. Mm. See, that was that was pretty cool back then. I mean, now everybody talks about DNA, but 
but but that was my introduction my introduction at about 13 years of age and so i just did a private study on what this the implications were there is no substitute for that kind of stuff i think and if we can make it interesting and exciting for our kids you know rather than work mm. yeah you can certainly do that we have three more questions so thank you for okay your right. and i'm like i'm taking notes on everything you're saying it's great okay, uh, yeah. you're talking about kids and when i think about kids i do think about this issue of immigration when we talk about the dreamers yeah. and so many other kids that I even work right. with who are mm. faced with this issue. So the debate around this includes the civil rights of immigrant populations and hundreds of right. billions of dollars brought into the gross domestic product by immigrants and the contribution right. and the surge of unaccompanied minors. Are there any policies or legislation that speak to your opinions about what's best for America's immigration challenges? Well, I mean, where we are now in our immigration challenges, we've been here before. Okay, we, mm -hmm. we, there is a Chinese Exclusion Act and the Japanese Exclusion Act um, of 1924. And, um, and basically, we, we thought we had too many Asians, too many Chinese in America, and that they were going to corrupt our culture. Um, we've been here before. This is ugly, it's nasty, but the fact is, America is not America unless we have immigration, mm -hmm. right? Now, here's mm -hmm. what's problematic. And I always ask, I used to ask my students. So let's say that that 5.5 million Mexicans who are part of that 11 million illegal immigrants, let's say they were from Sweden. Would we be having this conversation? Not at all. You see, you see, so that's another veiled racist attempt to hide behind a, a title called immigration. The fact is, is that America is a land of immigrants. We know that the strength of America that separates us from some other totalitarian countries that limited immigration is that we've always taken people. You know, and when we get our craziest, we don't want to take people in who have skin color that looks like yours or looks like mine or has have slanted eyes, you mm. know. Um, um, and there is no accident that in at the start of World War II, the largest populations in America were Italians, Germans, and Japanese of the countries that were at war with us right and we chose to intern the japanese why mm -hmm. because they were not white and they were held to greater suspicion you think that's accidental so our immigration policies have been just totally bastardized in the interest of racism and and uh, ethnocentrism we're better than that you know, we're, we're better than that. Um, but sometimes we think to our lowest common denominator, and I say we do that in order to get better. Hmm. I think we, where we are now, we have to have gone. We had to go here. Um, I, I met up with a guy I went to University of Florida with almost 50 years ago now. And uh, he said, Dixon, you know something you were predicting. You predicted Trump 
and you predicted this whole white nationalism 50 years ago. Really? Yeah, and I, and I said, oh man, his name was Paul. I go, Paul, are you crazy? He said, yeah, I remember, man. You used to talk about it all the time. I said, oh yeah, I remember that too. And he said, you used to go around quoting Frederick Douglass, you know, power concedes nothing without a struggle, never has, never will. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> and but, but you know what I was doing all those years ago at the University of Florida? I was looking at the changing demographics mm. and all of the projections that by 2040, 2050, America would be majority minority. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't think that white Americans would ever give up their privilege without a fight. And right now we're on the outer edges of it. It hasn't gotten as bad as it's going to get. Do you really feel like it's going to get worse? Yes. Because I mean, I, I'm talking about a bloody struggle. I'm well, praying every day that it doesn't come to that. But mm. these militia men walking around in Michigan, going to the governor's mansion, demanding that the governor show up and everything without any consequence. Mm. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and, that did happen. Yeah. And I tell you, when people say, well, it's not all law enforcement officers that are bad. It's just a few bad apples. Not true. <laughs> not true. It's systemic. It's institutionalized. And here's how it goes. There are people, there are white people who want to kill black people, who figured out the perfect way to do it. And that has become part of law enforcement. Mm. And you can do it without any type of legal sanction. That's a, that's a group in, within law enforcement. It's not the largest group. The largest mm -hmm. group are the people who know that it's wrong and don't stand by and say nothing. Mm -hmm. That's the majority of Germans in Nazi Germany. See, a lot of people, contrary to popular belief, believe that most, most Germans were part of the Nazi party. Never was. That wasn't true. But they stayed silent. And then there's another smaller group who know that it's wrong and who are trying to fight it inside police department, law enforcement offices, but they are being silenced mm -hmm. and they run the risk of undermining their career advancement. Yeah, and or, or threatening their own lives or, you know. Right, right. So this is not just a few bad apples kind of thing. And with and with the whole immigration thing, this is not just a few bad apples. Look, I mean, the fact is, is that Trump, regardless of the fact that he will not denounce white supremacy, still enjoys a 40% um, support among Americans. Do you know what that means? Mm -hmm. Well, that's if, because, and we addressed this last week, the panel read us um, a quote from him where he did denounce white supremacy, but I'm confused because in the most recent debate, when they asked him to do it again, he said he could, but then he didn't. So yeah, the fact is, is that for political advantage, he came back days later and said, well, I denounced him. Mm -hmm. he, didn't denounce, he didn't denounce him in Charlottesville. Maybe um, you got something to say? No, but that's what I was saying. Um, when I had spoke with, when we spoke with, uh, I guess, the individuals from Blexit, I said in that moment, the day after, he did not denounce it. It was in a sit-down interview three or four days later 
where he shed light and that was that full transcript. So that's why I had to recommend it for our young professionals to go look at both instances when he spoke after Charlottesville and not just in the sit down interview. In a sit down interview, a person can do a lot of things. Right, because your team preps you on those type of situations. This is my opinion. I don't sit on his team. I'm not on his staff. I'm not in his cabinet. But similar to the debate that we saw in that moment when former Vice President Joe Biden asked him to denounce it, he chose not to. And he found a way to say other things. One of the ones that basically went trending, where he told his proud boys to stand back and mm -hmm. stand by, which is that mean a plethora of things. Those individuals are just like, hey, Let's wait our turn. No, not yet. Um, then they had other people who have basically come to his defense and say, well, he said it before. Does he have to say it every time? And I would be yes. a citizen of this country and say, absolutely. Like, it's not even a question. Every time I feel like it's asked, you don't go, you don't reference and say, well, I, I said it that time. No, like you have to say, it, I feel every time. So you're, the, I guess the individuals who follow your leading um, is adamant on where you stand on those type of issues. See, I agree. Okay, so and 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 the thing we have to do here's what here's my basic um, um, motto: If a person shows you who they are, believe them. Mm -hmm. They don't have to come back and show you over and over and over. Mm -hmm. If they show you who they are, believe them. And this 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 um, attitude, this demonization of Mexicans, this calling them rapists and and criminals just locking their children up and all of those kinds of things that's a white supremacist position yeah. right you know we can parse it and say well he didn't say it this time or he said it that time i don't care what he says i watch what he does that right and and there is no equivocation on the fact that he has catered to this group of americans and I think that's why the question is being raised, because if he wasn't doing that, people wouldn't even be asking the question no, if mean, you weren't showing yourself to be, you know, for that. I mean, the little stuff like um, uh, calling black football players who, um, mm -hmm. who kneel in silence, you know, in protest of police brutality and, and, and racial inequality or injustice. Yeah. Nasty names. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, name another group he's directed that kind of vitriol toward. Real fast, name another group. You can't. Because mm -hmm. it's not accidental, mm -hmm. right? And I always say, you know, um, George III would have been absolutely elated if the American colonists had decided to kneel in silence when the British National Anthem was being played. <laughs> You're like, opposed, that's all y'all got? Right, as opposed <laughs> to taking up armed struggle. Okay. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, but but the fact is, is that uh, no, I, a person shows me who they are, I take mm -hmm. them for their word. Mm -hmm. They tell me who they are, I take them at their word. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so the whole immigration thing is, everything's, it seems to be debated on the surface of it, but if you look at the patterns of the behavior of our leadership, I don't think there is much equivocation to arrive at. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I looked in the mirror years ago 
and realized that not only was I black, but I was ugly. I, I couldn't do anything about either one of them. So I had to at least expand my mind because I figured, I'm serious, you think I'm crazy. But when I was a young man growing into adulthood, I figured ain't no girl gonna ever be attracted to me because of my looks. I better, I better sharpen my mind. So if I ever get a chance to talk to her, she'll go, ooh, <laughs> he got a future. <laughs> Oh, I needed that uh, comedic <laughs> break after the heaviness just talking about, oh my goodness, yeah. the current administration is done. Uh, coming towards the end now, the First Amendment okay. states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Simply stated, this amendment protects every American's religious freedom. Are right. there policies that support or challenge every American's right to religious freedoms. Yes, and, and here's the interesting thing. Um, uh, that one of the first things that our framers of the Constitution did was say what they wouldn't do, right? It, just earlier when I was talking about abortion, I just don't think that's the place where government should, should have its nose, right? There are some yeah. places you don't put your nose in government. We started out by saying what would we do, but here's where it relates to religion. We created those rules related to the uh, respect of religion and the practice of religion to protect religion from government. Mm. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't to protect government from religion. Although in the history of the world, whenever the two merged, bad, bad, mm. bad things happened. Okay, but what we were trying to do is protect the government because remember now, the framers of the Constitution um, were immigrants from England and they came out of an England that had, that had switched from the Catholic Church to the Church of England and it was, a, it was punishable by death if you didn't uh, practice the Anglican beliefs. Mm. Do, do you understand? Yeah. So, 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 so that was under Henry VIII. And, and um, so what they wanted to do was that it didn't matter whether you were Protestant, Catholic, you know, Huguenot, whatever. Um, you could practice your religious beliefs without the government charging into your house and killing you because you weren't practicing the state religion. Mm. Make sense? No. So, 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 so separation of church and state is for a very good reason. Now, then we get down into the craziness of it. Can I pray in a classroom? Yeah. Yeah, it just can't be sanctioned by the, by the class, by the school. And the reason it can is because my prayer may be a prayer in a religious uh, um, um, sect that is different from somebody else's prayer. Do we say them all? So, so I, for me, I've never had a problem um, with the separation of church and state because my prayers and my faith are not dependent on any governmental structure. Mm. You, you see what I mean? Yes, and I so, do. Yeah, and so we create these, I always say, you know, there's an issue in the middle of every issue and everything around it is just noise. And we make all kinds of noise, you know what I mean? Trying to distract from the central issue. 
And in America, do I have the right to pray and worship as I choose? And the answer is absolutely unequivocally. Mm -hmm. Right? More there. Now, yeah. Now, do, do I want to imprint and I want to insert my religious beliefs on my governmental institutions? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very well stated. Lastly, uh, you know that President Trump was recently nominated for the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize based on his administration's Israel UAA, UAE peace deal, also known yeah. as the Abraham Accord. What, if any, is the U.S.'s responsibility to contributing to peace in the Holy Land and supporting Israel as an ally? Well, the U.S. responsibility is to promote peace around the world. Israel just happens to be in the world and part of the Holy Land. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's different now from unequivocally supporting Israel's policies across the board because some of Israel's policies are not conducive to creating peace, mm. right? So remember I talked about um, uh, learned people, you know, thinking people support issues, not mm -hmm. parties. Yes. Well, there are some outstanding things about Israel and there are some things about Israel that are not too good as it relates to their relationship and the treatment of Arabs. Mm. You can be supportive of Israel as a nation and criticize some of their policies. Same thing. Okay. But the, the, the thing I don't want anybody to ever be confused about is I'm an American. I'm an American first. I'm an American of African descent. See, I don't even go around referring to myself as African-American. I'm an American of African descent, mm. which means I'm American first. I love my country, but my country ain't fair my, in some cases, and my country ain't perfect in some mm -hmm. cases, and my country needs to be called out when it's engaging in inappropriate, deadly um, uh, behavior, right? 100%. So, yeah. Yay, thank you so much <laughs> for being with us. I know a lot of our young professionals have felt torn because they've been told things like, oh, if you don't vote this way, then there's no way you're a Christian or you're this or that. And I think you've done a very good job dismantling that narrative. Yeah and yeah. encouraging them to look at issues from different sides and gain that knowledge so that they can speak intelligently about things yeah. and contribute to society in a really healthy way. So I'm floored, you have me wanting to study and read things, <laughs> so I just love it. Thank you so much for being with us. Sharika, You're quite anything, welcome. anything you want to say to close out? Of course, just thank you for being on. I missed the first half of our lovely conversation. So this actually will be one of the first episodes that I have to listen to all the way through. Um, <laughs> you may want to turn like it off. To myself so I get to listen <laughs> to you guys um, as you discuss these very, very important issues. Yeah, and I would say thank you for having me. And if I said anything to hurt somebody's feelings, tough. <laughs> Sharika, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah, all right. <laughs>
It'll be all right. Yeah, they'll survive. 